Welcome to the podcast, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We chat with authors and storytellers in thought-provoking and intimate interviews, all with a Jewish twist. On today's program, I'm delighted to welcome Becca Cantor. Becca is the editorial director of Jewish Book Council and its annual print literary journal, Paper Brigade. She received a BA in English from the University of Pennsylvania and an MA in creative writing from the University of East Anglia. Becca was awarded a Fulbright Fellowship to Estonia to write and study the country's Jewish history. She now lives in Brooklyn. So welcome, Becca. Oh, well, thank you so much, Meryl. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm I'm delighted to have you. So, Becca, just yesterday, I I received an email about the Jewish Book Council's annual program to help authors promote their new books, and um, I am going to participate because I have okay. a new book coming out in April, and I've actually Excellent. participated. I've I've done it twice before. Um, the first time was in person. The second time uh, in 2020 was virtual. Mm-hmm. Um, so when people think of JBC, especially authors, this event often comes to mind. But I know there's so much more uh, to the Jewish Book Council. So why don't you tell us a little bit about this um, JBC annual uh, author showcase, as well as some of its other offerings. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And you are completely right that we have, there are so many different facets to JBC and many people who work with us in one program don't even necessarily know everything (laughs) that we do. Um, So uh, basically what we do, so as you mentioned, the JVC Network is in an author platform um, that every year sends over um, 270 authors on tour to different Jewish communities like JCCs or synagogues, um, uh, totaling in almost uh, 1,400 events every year. Wow. Um, and that's Meryl, as you'll be familiar with us, with this, it's kind of like a matchmaking process where we have a three-day conference in May. 90-second pitch. <laughs> yes, exactly. I was going to say two minutes. It sounds even worse when you say 90 seconds. Or actually, no, maybe that was before. You have two full minutes. Um, oh, now it's two minutes. Wow. Now it's 120 <laughs> seconds. So, yay. Wow. Um, exactly. 30 seconds can make all the difference. So excellent, but still very nerve wracking. Um, And so basically this author has uh, 120 seconds in which to pitch their their latest book um, to the representatives from different Jewish communities who are in the audience. We used to do it in person. Now they're just watching virtually. Um, And then from that, the communities can Um, choose authors that they would like to come and speak for different events. Um, And then if it matches, 
JBC will uh, send that author there. So we sort of think of it in a way, or it has been described as sort of speed dating for Jewish authors. Well, and it, it definitely does feel like, although I've never, I'm too old to have done speed dating, it, it feels what that <laughs> probably feels like. Exactly. Um, so uh, did you want to talk a little bit about some of the other programs? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So um, some, some of the other things that we do, um, well, I should start by saying maybe how we began and how that evolved into these different programs. So for those who don't know, JVC is a nonprofit based in New York. We're actually the longest running organization devoted exclusively to the support and celebration of Jewish literature. Mm -hmm. So our roots go back almost 100 years. In 1925, Fanny Goldstein, who was a pioneering librarian and really, um, really kind of a visionary in a way, at the, she worked at the Boston Public Library and she founded Jewish Book Week. She was very invested in um, you know, supporting and showcasing all different um, cultures at her library and, and having people see their own cultures reflected there. Um, and so one of the things that she did was to found uh, Jewish Book Week. Mm -hmm. And over the years, this developed more and more and more. In 1943, Jewish Book Week became Jewish Book Month right. and the committee overseeing it became <laughs> Jewish Book Council. So today we reach over half a million readers wow. and we, we still, so this, and we do it through these different facets I mentioned. Um, one of the things that we still do is still sponsoring Jewish Book Month. Um, we do network, which we already discussed. We award the National Jewish Book Awards and we mm -hmm. administer the, the Natan Notable Book Award. And Jewish Book Awards, we will um, soon be having an, an announcement about those two, the winners of the 2022 awards. Mm -hmm. That's also coming up, very exciting uh, thing to look forward to. Um, we also provide resources to book clubs, over 2,500 a year. Um, and then we also have an editorial side, which is where I come in. Um, mm -hmm. We do book reviews, short essays, excerpts, and interviews with authors online. Um, and we also publish an annual print literary journal, which is Paper Brigade. Wow. Paper Brigade was founded seven years ago. It's edited by me and our executive editor, Carol Kaufman. And then three years ago, we were joined by our fiction editor, Josh Rolnick. Um, yeah, I want to get to I want to get to Paper Brigade in a, in a minute. Uh, but yeah. I do when we're talking about the Jewish Book Council, I just have to ask you because people ask me this question all the time. Um, what what makes a book Jewish? <laughs> oh, well, you know, great question. <laughs> and I don't think, I mean, the, the thing that this is such, I think, like such a fruitful topic for discussion is that there's not, you know, really one answer. Um, I think that a lot of times, um, you know, there's a question of, you know, the different criteria that I think people often discuss about this is, does the author need to be Jewish? Does the book need to have Jewish content? And maybe the sort of more difficult aspect of that is like, how meaningful or central does the Jewish content need to be? 
Um, and I think that this, this definition is so hard to pin down that we even sort of deal with it in different ways at JBC. Wow, that's interesting because I always thought that JBC's definition was that it either had to be a Jewish author or Jewish content. So you're saying it's more complicated than that. <laughs> to a certain extent, but I think that we try to sort of um, um, expand it as much as possible. Like I would say that for review for network, um, what you said is exactly right. For review, we do look for some Jewish content, regardless of whether um, the book is written by a Jewish author or not. We usually focus on books that have some Jewish content. You know, but I would really say that in general at JBC, our focus is less on, you know, sort of limiting what is a Jewish book or focusing on, you know, the fences that we might build around that definition. Mm -hmm. um, and Warren just, we're really interested in embracing and expanding the definition of the Jewish experience through Jewish books and literature and highlighting the amazing range of books that do come under that umbrella. You know, I think that there are a lot of Jewish experiences that have always existed, but haven't always been acknowledged in the, in the Jewish canon. And I think that with JBC, we try to um, highlight those voices, you know, whether they're, whether it's, um, you know, talking about Jewish identity in different regions of the world, um, people of different races, of different sexualities. So that's very important to us. Um, you know, and something that I think, especially when um, you're talking about fiction, um, you know, I definitely have heard that for a lot of people, if they work with Jewish books, they are searching for um, Jewish content that's at the core of the book. But, mm -hmm. you know, personally, I think that in the past, it was probably easier to identify something on those along those lines of being as a Jewish book, because since Jews were less integrated into mainstream society, if a novel featured Jewish characters, Jewish identity would almost by default have to play an integral role in the plot. But now things are different. And I think that I'm most intrigued by stories that explore the crossover of different aspects of identity. And, um, you know, and that where Jewish identity is something that's very important, but other things are very important too. I mean, I think a great example is Gabrielle Zevin's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Um, I don't know if you've read this, but two of the characters have Ashkenazi heritage, and that's certainly significant in the book, but there's also many other things that are significant in the book. Like the characters are, deeply influenced by race, by privilege, by illness, by death. And the core of the book is also really about their relationships with each other and the video games that they create and what the significance of that is. So for me, that mix of identities and interests is really a very accurate reflection of the Jewish experience of many people today. That, that, yeah, that's a really good point. They, people have many identities. Yeah, that, that is true. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the paper 
Brigade. You're you're the editorial director. And I, you know, I just I've been looking at it. It's really a very gorgeous um visually together. And I mean, there's just so much in it. There's so much to talk about. But I just I opened it up again and I, mm-hmm. I just noticed it says the original paper brigade, a group of writers and intellectuals in the Vilna ghetto risked their lives to rescue thousands of books and documents from Nazi hands. This publication is named in their honor. I, I thought that was um, very, very touching. Um, I, I yeah. didn't. I didn't realize that that's, I, I mean, I, I actually did see a film about the paper brigade, but I, I didn't put two and two together, but that's, that's very meaningful. Um, so as I said, I've been devouring the latest issue and um, it's, you know, not only visually beautiful, but it's, as you mentioned, and I, I see you're you know, one of your goals, it's incredibly broad and deep and diverse in reflecting Jewish voices, you know, so there were a few pieces that really um, caught my attention as examples of this. You have a Bengali play in the Warsaw Ghetto by Jay Chakrabarty, a conversation with Gary Steingart and Claire Stanford by Stephanie Butnick, um, Mm -hmm. Violins and Hope by Daniel Levin, and and, um, Sephardi Voices. And, you know, you also have a Jewish literary map of of India uh, in this issue. So how do you decide on the different pieces that go into paper brigade in order to reflect this mission that you discussed? Um, That's a wonderful, first of all, Meryl, thank you so much for this praise. I'm so glad that you're enjoying it. Um, And those are all things that I really try to do that we try to do with paper brigade. So um, I love that that comes across in the issue. Um, And I can say like, you know, when we, when Carol and I sit down to plan the forthcoming issue, we start by commissioning work that explores overarching themes or trends that have emerged throughout the year. Um, you know, so in this issue of the journal, for example, there's an essay by Melissa R. Clapper, Mothers and Others, which discusses three recent novels about infertility and the pressure on Jewish women to have children. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the map is something that we have actually every year we try to focus on a certain country or region and um, showcase the books and literature that have come out, that's come out of there that might be unexpected um, to our readers. So I'll sort of, Jai's piece is very connected to the map that we have this year. So I think I can kind of go in by explaining all of that together. Um, Basically, so in the um, last year's um, network conference, which we were just talking about. Um, we ha- so John Chakrabarty was speaking about his play, um, his book, uh, his debut novel called A Play for the End of the World. And he was talking about his inspiration for this book. And I was immediately um, sort of taken in by the story that he was telling and I thought we have to commission him to write a piece. So he was he was describing in this, this is also in the piece that 
a number of years ago, he and his wife were living in Jerusalem and they visited Yad Vashem. And he was wandering around this exhibit on art in the Nazi ghettos. And he came across this you know, short film that they had in the exhibit on Yanush Korshek, um, who was the head of a Jewish orphanage in Warsaw, uh, as well as a prominent author and philosopher and pediatrician um, during, during the Nazi time period. And, and what was really kind of striking about this was that as the film described in 1942, as life was becoming just unbearable in the ghetto, there were all sorts of rumors about mass depredations. Um, Korshek decided to leave the children in his orphanage in a production of the play, The Post Office by this, Norval. Yeah, okay. this, this blew me away. I mean, this, this was such a um, touching, touching piece yeah yeah no absolutely and you know this this so this this remarkable thing and not just remarkable just because um of this decision to put on a play in during this horrible time but also jai realized suddenly wait a minute the post office i performed this play when i was a child in india um, in elementary school, you know, we just put on a school production. Um, it's actually a Bengali play um, by a normal Nobel laureate um, who, uh, who, who had created this um, years before. And so Jai was just blown away by this connection, completely unexpected connection between his own childhood um, and the Holocaust, his his wife is a daughter of Holocaust survivors. Um, and he began to think about the, um, the sort of wonder of, of performing art at such a precarious moment um, in history. And then the idea of really the power of art as resistance. And so that's kind of what the essay is about. Um, and Basically, I had originally commissioned this piece, hoping to get into the last issue of Paper Brigade. The timing didn't work out. But what ended up happening was, so first, Jai actually won the our National Jewish Book Award for debut fiction that year. Um, and then Esther David, who's a Indian Jewish writer, um, won the our award for cookbook writing and food, food writing. Mm -hmm. So with those two things, you know, Carol and I had been thinking for a very long time, we'd like to do a Jewish literary map of India. And when those two both won awards, we thought, ah, oh, this is the perfect way to be able to do that. So what you see now is the map sandwiched between as a sort of centerpiece, sandwiched between um, Jai's piece, about the inspiration for his book, A Play for the End of the World, and then Esther's piece, um, which is about her own, her own, um, so her, her book is called um, Bene Appetit, and it's about um, Indian Jewish cooking, and her piece is about this grinding stone that was passed down for generations in her family that was like the central part of her kitchen um, for, 
many, many years. So that was a really interesting thing that came about quite organically with having um, those three pieces together and being able to focus on this um, on this interesting region and then really the interconnections, but also differences between the different focuses of these authors. Yeah, which, uh, which stories do you think have the most uh, resonance with readers? Hmm. I know you can't, you can't pick your children, but. <laughs> <laughs> like which, which pieces? Talk about, I mean, I don't mean specific stories. I mean, um, themes or, or types of stories. That, well, that's a really good question. I mean, I think that right now I'm seeing so much about um, of authors really looking back to the past and especially to um, mythological Jewish mythological creatures, creatures from folklore and reinventing them for the, the present day and sort of looking at them with a, you know, the lens that we have through our modern sensibilities and sort of seeing how these creatures and these myths um, and sort of magical ideas can help us to understand and process our current moment. So we had a lot about this even in our last issue, um, so much so that Carol, my co-editor, even joked that it was like the golem issue because there were so many, uh, <laughs> like just, just you know, really just because there were so many books about this, you know? Um, so we had essays, interviews, um, a visual arts thing that involved golems. But in this year, we, we actually kind of were like, first we thought to ourselves, you know, we're kind of, you know, we've done, done so much in the last issue about this, we can't really do this again, but authors were continuing to write about it and people were continuing to be so interested in it, including us, um, that we ended up doing, so there's a couple of different pieces here that also talk about that. Um, one in particular was, um, an interview between um, five different YA authors who have all, or middle grade and YA authors who have all written about Jewish mythological creatures and in recent books. And this was a sort of different focus than we had before, but we asked them all to tell us like, you know, tell us about this mythological creature, what it means for you and um, what do you hope that young readers are getting from this, either in terms of viewing their identity or their um, or their history differently? Um, and they all answered in such interesting ways. Um, I know that um, that basically um, I, I don't have the quote right in front of me now, but Emmy Watanabe Cohen is talking about how. Um, the dragon in her in her um, in her book um, basically is kind of a way of of talking about myth building in different societies and her own um, some of her own experiences being both Japanese and Jewish. So I thought that, that was that was very interesting, and that's definitely something that continues. Yeah, that continues to have people just resonate with it. And yeah, so, yeah. So, so I, I'm fascinated with that. Um, I know 
from my five-year-old grandson, um, but he likes to read books about aliens and creatures and monsters and everything. But I didn't, um, so you're saying that adults, uh, that's a big thing with adults as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, and first of all, I think it's so wonderful about your grandson because it's like, you know, you realize that, you know, these things are always fascinating and actually Jewish history itself, I think that it's almost like these underused characters. Um, <laughs> but yeah. although, although, you know, Thane Rosenbaum wrote a book called The Golems of Gotham. I'm, I mean, I want to say at least 20 years ago. So he was really ahead of his time. Yes, yes. And I, I, I yeah, I guess it's just uh, to uh, modify that statement before. I feel like, you know, obviously there have been throughout the ages people people writing about um, these creatures. I just sort of wish that they could reach, you know, a more mainstream audience because I think that they're just so fascinating for anyone. But yeah, I think that, so there's been a lot about folklore um, for adults as well. So in this issue, we have, um, a really fascinating piece by Jenna Rose Nethercott that is about, so her novel, which is for adults, is about, uh, sort of inspired by Russian folklore and Jewish folk folklore, um, and it's kind of a, a reimagining, if you will, of um, Baba Yaga. This, mm -hmm. this oh, yeah. yeah. You know, when I was a little girl, my friend's aunt lived on the block next door to my friend and uh she used she's called it bubby Ica. she used to tell us these stories and i realized that was Baba yaga that is so oh that is so interesting yeah i mean i i remember i think reading a book about Baba yaga as a kid a picture book mm -hmm. um so yeah, right. So that's taking this story and um, and sort of having a modern day story about two siblings. But this really interesting aspect of this story is that um, it's about a puppet theater. And Jenna Rose actually worked with um, a puppet theater and company that created for her a puppet of Baba Yaga. Oh, wow. So it's, and it's really, I mean, it's I really want, cool. I want one. Where do you get it? <laughs> I know. Well, look up Sandglass Theater. You might be able to see some, um, you know, if you Google it, you might be able to see some photos of it. Or if you Google Jenna Rose Nethercott, um, we now have this article also online from Paper Brigade, so you can check it out there along with some photos, but it is really interesting because she's also talking about, um, you know, puppetry, which is something that also you might think about as something mainly for children, um, but she, in her article for Paper Brigade, she delves into the history of Jewish puppetry um, and talks about how, you know, it can, in a way, this other art form can enhance Jewish storytelling, you know, just the, the verbal part of, of Jewish storytelling. Um, I see, and, I see a, a whole business uh, sprouting from that. <laughs> I know, I mean, it's completely fascinating and I didn't know any of that before the article. So it's always kind of, you know, a lot of this is always kind of a learning experience for me too. And I get to, to you know, commission pieces that I want to know more about that topic, so. so yeah, so um, I mentioned before that the physical visual aspect of paper 
brigade is clearly um, very important to you. How do you, what goes into achieving such a visually pleasing journal? Oh, well, that's, that's a really great question. Um, you know, sort of as a thing actually with, with uh, Gen Generos Nethercott, um, the, I, to me, it's really important to remember that, you know, we're the Jewish Book Council and books aren't just about the words inside them. They're also physical objects in and of themselves and um, illustrators, designers, artists are an integral part of books too. So this also goes back to the, our reason for founding Paper Brigade where, you know, before this, we were publishing a quarterly um, magazine um, with a lot of content that we ended up sort of migrating online, like our book reviews and stuff like that. And so we thought, okay, if we're going to do something that's in print, it really needs to be worthwhile to be in print, you know, not just replicating um, the same kind of content that we could have online, but distinguishing itself as something that is timely, but it's also timeless. It's a keepsake that you can, um, you know, turn back to over and over again throughout the years. And part of that is really making something that that's an object that is visually pleasing as well. So um, with Paper Game Brigade, we try to both um, accomplish that and highlight um, visual arts that have been, um, you know, highlighted in books throughout the, the uh, previous year. So like two examples that um, Meryl, I know that you had highlighted um, are Violins and Hope by Daniel Levin and Sephardi Voices, um, The Forgotten Exodus of the Arab Jews by Henry Green and Richard Sturzberg. So these are both books of photography, um, and I'll sort of give examples, and I wish I could show Paper Brigade um, somehow through the voices yeah. of, of this podcast, but um, I'll do my best to sort of describe it. Um, so Violins and Hope is um, a book of photography that focuses on Amnon Weinstein. He is um, based in Israel in Tel Aviv, and he actually takes violins that survived the Holocaust often even though their owners did not survive, and he beautifully restores them. And then from his workshop, he gives them to violinists at all different points of their careers. And then he organizes the Violins of Hope concerts all around the world where these violins are played. So in Paper Brigade, we first have this, um, really, which I, I think beautiful photograph of Weinstein working on a violin in his workshop. And then we have a two page spread with a photograph of him removing a bit of wood from the violin to improve its resonance. And then on the next spread, you see um, a picture of the, the Jakob Zimmerman five-star violin, which is, um, fully restored um, to all of its glory. Um, it's really interesting. You see um, Star of David on two different parts of the, of the violin. Um, so that's really just beautiful. And I think that, you know, um, also with the next one, 
with both of these, we tried to select photographs that, you know, encapsulate the general sense of the book while also telling a little story in this sort of condensed vignette form that we can show them in Paper Brigade. So we see the whole process through those, those three photographs, at least as much as can be told in three photographs. Yeah, so, um, it, so you, so this is, can't be online, right? This, this. No, so this part is just. No, the journal, I mean, you're, it's tactile. You, I, I mean, I, it seems to me it's, you've got to hold it in your hand and look at it, right? Yes, yes. And some of our pieces we do, that's, I mean, it's such a great question because some of our pieces we do end up publishing online afterwards. Um, and, and also we'll, we'll look for the best of what the, the, or I wouldn't say the best, but the, the sort of stand, some of the standout pieces that we published online throughout the year, and we'll put them into Paper Brigade too, but there is definitely something um, specifically that we keep for Paper Brigade because that is truly the best way to experience it. And, and this, this is definitely an example of that. Um, some of our graphic novels that I was just thinking about, we've, you know, in the past years, we've published some graphic novels. We also have a mini graphic um, just designed for us in this issue. But to me, that's also something that is, um, you know, you can really experience it on the page in a different way that you, than you can online. So um, we like to sort of try to preserve as much as possible the way that it was intentionally, I mean, originally intended to be presented to the reader. So, so for, for our listeners, I, I want to ask you, um, how does one get Paper Brigade? Do you uh, pay for it? Do you, is it included with membership? And uh, who are your readers? Yes, um, absolutely. So we, um, we, so basically you can definitely buy it. Um, it's just, if you go to our website, which is www.jewishbookcouncil.org, um, you will find a link on, you know, I think it's in the upper right corner where you can go to either Paper Brigade or our shop and buy it. Um, if you become a member of Jewish Book Council, you will also get it. Um, so that's through us. And then also um, it is in some, um, some uh, independent bookstores. Um, and um, I'm trying to, I don't know if I know all of them off the top of my head, but in, um, but in New York, I believe that it is in uh, the Center for Fiction and Greenlight Books, mm -hmm. um, and then also Politics and Prose um, in DC. And I will also get back to you, Meryl, in terms of other places that one can buy it. Mm -hmm. No, it's it's really, it's a beautiful publication. So uh, congratulations to, to, to you and, and Carol and everyone who's involved in it. Um, so I, I want to switch gears a little bit now and just, um, talk about you, uh, in your bio, it says you received a Fulbright fellowship, um, to write 
and a study about Estonia's uh, Jewish history. I want to hear a little bit, bit about that and what did you learn from the experience and what did you write? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I have to admit, first off, I did write an article about this, but I've not yet uh, completed the project that I set out to do, although I really hope to. Um, but this was a really fascinating experience for me because my grandfather um, was born in Estonia. He, um, he came to the US when he was a very small child. Um, and I never knew my grandfather, but um, he, but I heard stories. When, you know, when did he come here? What year? In, I think 1906. Uh-huh, okay. So he passed away, you know, long before I was born. Um, but I grew up hearing the stories that had been passed down. Um, and it was, you know, almost presented as this almost magical place um, where, you know, he grew up in this island um, with a castle and there was a moat. Really? Wow. Castle. Yes. And so, and so, um, and, you know, it was, it, he remembered that his father worked in this castle. That was, that was what he, he remembered his father worked in the castle. Um, and that, um, uh, you know, so there, there was these very distinct memories that he had of Estonia. He also remembered um, that as a child, he, um, in a, I, I believe a sort of communal kitchen space or something like this, but maybe that might be wrong. He, um, one day he saw these, these coals in the fire that were burnt, like, I guess they were sort of low on oxygen. So they were burning this like really beautiful, weird colors of blue and green that he was just like fascinated by. And he, as this young child of like three years old, managed to shovel some of them into this pinafore that he was wearing, which of course flared up and burned his face that oh. gave him like scars for the entire rest of his life. Mm -hmm. um, and that was kind of this formative experience that he had there, which sort of, um, you know, apparently his father said, It'd be better for him if he uh, if he died basically, and his mother said no. Like I think that he'll become a great man become a, because of this. And I think there might have been some connection there to the idea of like like um, like the sort of stories that like baby Moses, uh, you know, being sort of like put in front of either coals or like the the pharaohs. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was. I'm, I'm not entirely sure about this, but so he had these like distinct memories of it um, that influenced his, you know, whole life. He ended up um, becoming an architect, and I think that you know, from this very early age, this idea of the monumental castle there in Estonia kind of influenced him. Perhaps he also went back. Um, so basically, the family um, left in, I think it was 1906, basically because um, the, the, the Russia was, so at the time as part of the Russian empire, Russia was gearing up um, to, to uh, you know, look like be part of, uh, be involved in the Russo-Japanese war. And so it's like kind of this um, like time when people were being 
especially Jews, were being pulled off the street and like conscripted into the Russian army. Right. So um, he, he, basically his family decided that they needed to leave and they came to the US. Um, and, you know, for, and then for long, like all of their relatives who had still been in, um, in Estonia and also in, in Latvia, because at the time, as it was part of the or the Russian Empire, it was kind of like uh, pretty porous between those two places um, at first. And so some of the relatives um, ended up in Riga by the time um, uh, World War II happened. And um, they were all killed during the Holocaust, except one, one uncle who escaped and, and joined the Red Army. Um, and who eventually died in war. Um, and so that happened, so he no longer had any relatives there. He'd gone back to visit them when he was 28, but he no longer had any relatives there. And then during you know, the Cold War, nobody could visit Estonia. So it still was, was um, you know, something that seemed very far off and distant to um, my family. Um, and, then, and then of course, then I had this opportunity where I really wanted to learn more context about um, Jewish life in Estonia, and it's not something that I had really encountered, you know, any books about that, or any movies about that, um, a lot of, like, I, I, a lot of Estonian people, when we actually, my family first went there, were like, no, there were never any Jews in Estonia, just had never heard of it, like, they, you know, not, not out of any kind of, it, it doesn't, it doesn't get mentioned a lot. <laughs> Like, I mean, we, we both work in, in, you know, the field of Jewish books, but, you know, it's still to us, you know, maybe it's just not even that familiar. And so I wanted to go back and really learn, okay, it's not just this fairy tale, like, what was the reality behind, um, you know, the life that they led. So that was just really fascinating for me. I mean, we had, and some of my other family, um, was doing research for this as well. Um, my uncle, my uncle actually made a film that sort of talks about his relationship with his father. So he was uncovering a lot of this stuff um, simultaneously. But like, you know, it was just interesting to sort of put in a way. It kind of reminded me of the movie Big Fish, where sort of I don't know if you've ever seen this, but where the the father's stories are end up being slightly exaggerated, but also mm -hmm. definitely having a lot of truth to them. So mm -hmm. they they sort of figured um, basically like my great grandfather, he, he might have actually worked at the castle, but there are these um, barracks that were built by Russians, um, I think in like the 1700s um, and the castle's way, I mean, just this, um, you know, very, very old, almost block-like castle. Um, but in, in the 1700s, there were these um, um, barracks that were stone barracks that were built outside of it. And then eventually they were sort of, you know, turned into other things. And they thought the historian that I spoke to um, who, who um, lives on this island um, and works on this island, Sarama, he thought maybe my great-grandfather had worked in this sort of little banking, I think it was a sort of a small bank in one of these 
Um, this all sounds like it has the making of a novel, or is that what you're thinking of? Are you thinking about doing something nonfiction with it? I, I was actually thinking of a novel because I think that it's it is such a um, interesting time period. Estonia and there's had, a lot of you know the descriptors. It's very colorful, just from what you're telling me here it sounds like it would be a lush a lush fiction <laughs> well i can i can only hope but i think that estonia has a really interesting history um and a jewish history that in some ways was kind of exceptional um such as there was a very flourishing um jewish life in between um World War One and World War Two, mm -hmm. so with like Jewish fraternities at at you know universities. Wow! And now like you that. you've got it. You've got to you've got to write this up. So, do you um do you write on a regular basis, or you don't have time? <laughs> that's a great question. Um, um, I do try to write on a somewhat regular basis, although um I do think that sometimes it is very hard to to uh find the time but and what, what do you write do you write fiction or non-fiction or both um i work right right now i'm actually working on a different novel um and i think my interest has always been really in in fiction in terms of what i write mm -hmm. um but, and I think longer fiction has also kind of always appealed to me rather than short stories, just because I am very interested in just the sort of nuances of how a lot of things interconnect, like the Estonia thing that, that I was just describing, that it has that almost um, epic nature. Not that I would necessarily write something that has an epic nature, but I, I really love how much can be examined over a long, um, longer work. Well, um, I, for one, am looking forward to reading it. <laughs> um, Thank you so, so much, Rose. So uh, well, we're, we're going to be wrapping up soon. What, what do you like to read, Becca? Um, oh, so many things. I mean, that is such a wonderful question. I mean, OK, so really, runs the whole range as you know as we're paper brigade um recently i read i just read a ya novel by dahlia adler it was her latest called um home that was home field advantage and it was just delightful and then um i've also read recently um or reread i should say a novel that came out by a dear friend of mine that's really to me fascinating um it's about a the third basically sort of third generation um german experience and um the way that the legacy of secrets and the holocaust is passed down um that book is called windstill and my friend's name is elaned ramick mm -hmm. um and then I'm really looking forward to reading Jai's new collection of sh short stories, having loved his novel, as I described. Um, I'm also really interested. So this sort of, um, this third generation is something that's really interesting to me. And also um, the, the German experience of the Holocaust, which I think is 
is um, something that is just, I mean, to me, it's really fascinating. Um, there's a book coming out um, soon, which is called The Hour Between Dog and Wolf, I believe, which is about a, um, you know, during World War II, a girl, Jewish girl who's sent away for safekeeping to a small um, town with a Catholic family, um, but then over the years actually becomes kind of a believer in Nazism herself. So to me, that's very kind of like psychologically interesting. Um, and I'm really looking forward to delving into that. And then just one other book I'll mention that I'm really excited that's coming out soon is um, Davin Lobes, and I hope I'm pronouncing the, the last name right. Um, story, he, it's described as a uh, lyrical memoir about growing up um, biracial and Jewish in a mostly white suburb of New Jersey. And wow. so in New Jersey, and I'm, I'm just, I'm really looking forward to, um, to reading this. Um, I've been in correspondence with him a little bit earlier and the book is going to come out this spring. So I'm really excited for that. Great, great. So um, where can people find you online, Becca? Um, definitely through Jewish Book Council. Um, and also they are very welcome. So Jewish Book Council, just to say again, um, the, um, the website is www.jewish bookcouncil.org. Um, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, um, we are on Facebook. Um, and me personally, I'm also on Instagram. So it's just, my handle is just at Becca Cantor. So you're welcome to follow me there too. Thanks so much for joining us today. Becca Cantor, the editorial director of Jewish Book Council and its annual print literary journal, Paper Brigade. I also want to thank our executive producer, Pam Stack. People of the Book is a copyrighted presentation of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Please visit us and like our Facebook page, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain, the author of The Takeaway Man. The sequel, Shadows We Carry, will be published next April. For more information about my books and writing, visit me at merylane.com. Until next time, please join us on Facebook at Jews Love to Read and read a good book. Bye.